Our speaker tonight um, is a wonderful man, um, a husband, um, and a, a friend of mine. His name is Dr. Tim O'Malley. I first met Tim uh, in the Notre Dame Glee Club. Uh, we used to sing together. Uh, we haven't sing, sung together in a while. Um, but now Tim, after getting his um, PhD from Boston College, is up at the University of Notre Dame teaching theology, and he's the director for the Center of Liturgy up at Notre Dame. Um, he's a very, very wise man, uh, a very funny man, um, and a very caring man. Uh, so I'm very happy to have Tim here to speak with all of you this evening. So uh, without further ado, let's have Tim come on up. So Paul asked me to pray. So I guess that's a requirement. So I'm going to do that. Just kidding. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. God, be with us this evening as we reflect upon the sacramental life. Bless our fellowship together. And through it, may we come closer to your Son. We ask all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, it's a delight to be here. It's a bit intimidating because it's a bar. I have to hold it up. Is this exceptionally loud? I feel like this is really loud. Okay. Okay. Well, well, I'm very happy to be here tonight. Uh, it's a little intimidating to be here at a bar. Um, I don't often teach in bars. Uh, you're not allowed to take your undergraduate students to bars. It's a fact, because if you do, you get arrested. So um, it's, it's nice to be here, and I wanted to talk tonight just a little bit about how the sacraments of the church uh, and, and specific parts of the sacraments of the church, particularly marriage and uh, the Eucharist, can shape our uh, life within the world. But I wanted to begin with an, a kind of story. When I was uh, in 2006, uh, my wife and I attended a wedding in Evanston, Illinois, of two high school sweethearts. Uh, and high school sweethearts don't generally happen in the world anymore. I feel like they mostly break up. So it was a, it was a particularly joyous wedding to see two people getting married who had been uh, together for a really long period of time. And in addition to this, the bride was Filipino. And as a, uh, as a young uh, part of the ceremony involved them exchanging coins as a sign of their willingness to welcome the poor into their midst, uh, to, to, for their home to become a sign of radical hospitality. So then right at the Lamb of God, in comes a homeless woman, and she walks directly up to the altar from the street. Now, if you've read uh, Martha Stewart's latest guide to how to plan your wedding, it doesn't include the moment in which the homeless person comes in at your wedding. It just doesn't include that moment. Like, that's a shocking moment. Uh, it's not planning guide, they don't say, so when will the random person walk up to the altar? Like, this is the moment where it's time to shut it down. But the priest, uh, it, was, it was precisely at the moment where it said, uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Happy are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. And at that exact moment, uh, Marianne, who was the name of the woman, walked in off the street. She hands upon the altar. And the bride and the groom uh, reacted beautifully. How you would hope they would react. Uh, how you would hope you would react in this situation. The priest introduced them to the bride and the groom. And then this homeless woman sat next to them 
and she processed out at the end of the liturgy. For some reason, this narrative has stuck with me since 2006. I mean, precisely because I think, as someone who studies liturgy and the sacraments, it's kind of been the lens through which I viewed what I hope the liturgy and the sacraments does in the Christian life. How it transforms the Christian life into a life of love, a life of self-gift offered to all those in need, even at the time when you most expect that such neediness is um, when you're most closed in some sense to this neediness. None of us were thinking about the reception at this moment, uh, the moment in which, you know, you would go party. We were thinking about what it would mean uh, to love like this. So what I wanted to do today, and you have a sheet in front of you, is just to talk a bit about how specific moments of liturgy and the sacraments transform our life um, so that we can become this radical self-giving love, this radical love in the world. And that this is a moment of evangelization, that that's what evangelization is. Evangelization is becoming this love in the world, the transformation of all aspects of, your, of our humanity in love. So, I wanted to begin just then with that first definition of evangelization up there. See, I've always been, I grew up in the South, so I've been always somewhat afraid of the word evangelization. Because when we first moved uh, to my home in Tennessee in the South, um, I I arrived at my home, and uh, we moved in. I was nine years old, and this random person walks up to my door, and she says to me, "Um, where do you go to church? And we said, uh, Our Lady of Fatima, the Catholic church down the street. And, And... where I grew up, there were only 2% Catholics. So I was the uh, strangest human being all my friends had ever met. And so she said, oh, I'm sorry. Um, have you thought about going to, to the local Baptist church? So I've always hated evangelization, the word, initially, because I thought it meant I had to be like that woman who walked to the door and um, told people that they were bad human beings uh, and kind of uh, religiously incapable. Um, I find that to be a relatively unattractive way to convince people of beauty, truth, and goodness um, overall. And so um, evangelization, though, that's not what it is. Evangelization, as the first defin- as uh, Paul VI says, for the, for the church, evangelizing means bringing the good news into all the strata of humanity and through its influence, transforming humanity from within and making it new. The purpose of evangelization is there for precisely this interior change. And if it had to be expressed in one sentence, the best way of stating it would be to say that the church evangelizes when she seeks to convert solely through the divine power of the message she proclaims, both the personal and collective consciences of people, the activities in which they engage, and the lives and concrete milieus which are theirs. So evangelization is the church just being who the church is at the deepest identity, which is self-giving love. And that this, the depths of this identity is carried out within the sacramental life of the church. So that's what we're going to focus on today, how the sacramental life of the church is the roots of this evangelization. So I wanted to talk briefly about this, what, liturgy and life. It's not necessary that the two are connected. So I am, being from Tennessee, uh, one of the parishes I was in was big into kind of liturgical life. And they would focus extensively upon Eucharistic adoration 
as one mode of expressing this liturgical life, which was good. But I remember one time, I was kind of a, a theological nerd from a young age, so I would read my parish bulletin while I was in college, which is a sign that you're a nerd or you can't separate from the rest of your lives. Like, you, you just want to go back. Um, and so I would read the parish bulletin while I was in college. And in the parish bulletin, once I remember, they were looking for more volunteers for Eucharistic adoration. Simultaneously, direct, directly under this announcement was the following announcement. Do you guys have script in this area? Or Okay, so uh, script. They were advertising script in saying... A number of you have complained because the script looked too much like food stamps. So you can exchange your script for a gift card so, you don't, so you're not confused for having food stamps. I thought, oh, what a, what a shocking moment in which liturgy and the rest of your life is disconnected from each other. There you're saying we need volunteers for Eucharistic adoration. And then the very next line, you're saying, oh, and by the way, there are certain people here who are less important than everyone else. Certain people here are considered less valued than everyone else. And we know who you are. We called you out. It can also happen the other way where we totally emphasize it, where we think that the liturgy has to have some extra connection to life Our celebration of the Eucharist, for example, has to have an extra connection to life that we have to throw in uh, in order to make it work. So there's this parish, which I won't name, but it happens to be in South Bend, where for a long time they would process the gifts up using a shopping cart. Like, uh, and, and they would have donations of food using a shopping cart because it felt more earthy. It felt more like they were actually participating in kind of what people do in their daily life. They go shopping. That's not how liturgy and life connect to one another. Liturgy and life connect to one another because the liturgy itself forms us way of life. It forms us in a way of giving ourselves. And I have, two, I have three kind of definitions of liturgy that I focus on. What is the church's liturgy? At the Second Vatican Council, the following was said. The liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the church is directed. It is also the source from which all its power flows. For the goal of apostolic endeavor is that all who are made children of God by faith and baptism should come together to praise God in the midst of his church to take part in sacrifice, and to eat the Lord's Supper. The liturgy in its turn moves the faithful filled with the Paschal Sacraments to be one in their commitment to you. It prays that they hold fast in their lives to what they have grasped by their faith. The renewal in the Eucharist of the covenant between them and the Lord draws the faithful and sets them aflame with Christ's compelling love. From the liturgy, therefore, and especially from the Eucharist, grace is poured forth upon us as from a foundation, and our sanctification in Christ and the glorification of God, to which all other activities of the church are directed, as toward their end, are achieved with maximum effectiveness. So in the liturgy, we glorify God. We encounter the God who is not us, which is a kind of pleasant thing. Because if I was going to worship myself, well, I would kind of enjoy to worship myself. Uh, It's fun to worship self because uh, I'm not very difficult on myself. But I worship the God who is not me, the God who is outside me, who is radically other than me, who, though he was in the form of God, did not claim equality with God as something to be grasped at, but rather emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in human likeness. And he humbled himself. He emptied himself even to the point of death, death on a cross. That's the God I worship, not me. So in the liturgy, I 
glorify God. That God interrupts my life. And in that interruption, everything about me is sanctified. I like to see what happens in liturgy is somewhat akin to what happens in a stained glass window. Think of a stained glass window. Light light itself is beautiful. I live in South Bend, Indiana. Light is beautiful, friends, because winter is a time of no light. It is pure dark. There is no light in South Bend. It is only sadness and misery. Not in Indianapolis. You all have sun, right? Isn't that true? We have no sun. We only have misery. So light is beautiful, but light shines into a stained glass window, and it shines. It reflects it. Uh, the light shines into the, the glass, and it refracts it into beautiful colors. So our humanity in the liturgy, the, the best part of ourselves, is transformed and transfigured in liturgical prayer. And it reveals to us who we are at our very roots. That is, friends, we're made for love. Not like any sort of love, but like the most radical form of love you could imagine. And that's what the second definition I want to focus on. This is from Benedict XVI in his uh, letter he wrote called Sacramentum Caritatis, the sacrament of love. Christianity's new worship includes and transfigures every aspect of life. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Christians and all their actions are called to offer true worship to God. Hence, the intrinsically Eucharistic nature of Christian life begins to take shape. The Eucharist, since it embraces the concrete, everyday existence of the believer makes possible day by day the progressive transfiguration of all those called by grace to reflect the image of the Son of God. This is an important sentence that follows. There is nothing authentically human. Our thoughts and affections, our words and deeds that does not find in the sacrament of the Eucharist the form it needs to be lived to the full. Here we can see the full human import of the radical newness brought, brought by Christ in the Eucharist. The worship of God in our lives cannot be relegated to something private and individual, but tends by its nature to permeate every aspect of our existence. Worship pleasing to God thus becomes a new way of living our whole life. Each particular moment of which is lifted up, since it is lived as part of a relationship with Christ and as an offering to God. The glory of God is the living man, and the life of man is the vision of God. I know a number of you in here actually work in the church in some way, shape, or form. And it's really hard, for example, to convince young people, uh, high school students who my wife, my wife was a youth minister for years, and I feel like I've earned some time out of whatever purgatory is uh, because I was married to her during this time. Um, so if you're a youth minister, I thank you for your work, uh, and I'm glad I'm not you. But what happens in the Eucharist is the transformation of our entire lives into love. We become love. Our lives become worship. Your vocation, whatever you're doing within the context of the world, can be transformed through the Eucharist. Your life becomes an act of worship. This is a radical claim, especially in a world, friend, where it's not intrinsically sure that your life becomes an act of worship that your life has any meaning at all outside of profit, fame, and prestige. 
and power. Life that becomes worship becomes self-gift. It has a meaning. And if that's not evangelical, what is? That your life has a meaning because your life is informed by the worship of the church. So if you allow me to stand up here for several more minutes, and you can throw something at me to stop me, um, but I just want to talk about two ways that the liturgy does this. First, our memory, the narrative of our lives gets taken up into a different narrative. And two, we learn how to sacrifice ourselves. We learn what authentic sacrifice is. So I want to start with memory. When I was an undergraduate, I was really angsty because I was an undergraduate. Because I was 18 years old, and I thought, like, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. It's all disastrous. What's the future? Uh, Oh, God, please stop the pain. Maybe some of you have experienced this. No? No angst in the room? Great. No angst. Okay, a little bit of angst. No, you're waving at the... Oh, to me. Okay. I don't even know what that sport is. What is that sport? Okay, great. Sorry. It is. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, I was angsty as an undergraduate. And I remember... Like, I was reading Augustine's Confessions at the time. And as I was reading Augustine's own reflection upon the lo- on his own life, upon the way that his language had become scriptural, I suddenly realized, uh, kind of in the context of this narrative, as I was reading it, that life could have a kind of sense of meaning, that somehow the God that I had thought was working through my life up to that point in time wasn't precisely the God that I had imagined. That Augustine showed me that as my narrative, that God was going to be with me as a light no matter where I went, into this narrative that is beyond ourselves. That our narrative is something beyond ourselves, and that... The scriptures bestow to us a narrative that helps to make sense of our life. Why is this important? There's nothing intrinsically true about the world today that would imagine us to say that my narrative is necessarily meaningful. I work with college students over the course of the summer. I teach them so that they'll be able to to minister to high school students, um, specifically in a program called Notre Dame Vision. And the first thing they realize is that the high school students that they work with don't think that their lives are meaningful, or they've embraced narratives that aren't true. Beauty, I'm not beautiful. I'm ugly. True beauty is what happens when you look like this, when you look like you're on the cover of a magazine. And because I'm not that, I'm not valuable. My parents are divorced, so no one loves me. No one loves me at all. All my life, I've known only the brokenness of relationships. High school students who have been sexually abused and don't think in any way that their life is valid, that there's any beauty possible in their life, that their narrative is an entire mess. Those students who think that the only direction for their life is fame or fortune or money and suddenly realize that maybe there might be something more important to do with your life. All of these narratives function, but in the liturgy, the scriptures, we encounter a narrative that's different and it becomes a part of our lives. It enters into our lives. I once knew a parish that was, here's what the church doesn't mean by memory. That on the feast of Christmas, they would set up a guide wire from the back of the church to the front of the nativity set. And at midnight mass, 
baby Jesus would get flung down from the back and land in the manger. Happy birthday, Jesus! Uh, Mission Impossible Christ. That's not what the church means by memory. So I want you to look just at a couple of the colics that I have. A colic prayer is one of the prayers that the church prays in the liturgy. It's typically the opening prayer. Why is it called a colic prayer? Well, the priest says, let us pray. And then it's supposed to be quiet. And all of us are actually supposed to be praying. Fact. Not saying like, oh gosh, this is long. When is this going to be over? We're supposed to be praying. And then the priest prays in words that collect our prayers. Into a single prayer. That's the colic prayer. And it's the opening prayer. And if you pay attention to those prayers, they have a structure. You say who you're addressing, God. God, you who have done this thing once upon a time, you will do it again in a different way, probably in the context of my life, through Christ our Lord. All the prayers have a structure that's you who do through. You name God, you say something God has done, and then you ask that God might do it again. So I wanted to look at a couple of these colics. I wanted to look at the colic of Christmas in particular. Because Christmas is the feast for most of us of uh, happy birthday Jesus. But it's not. It's the birth of something far more uh, kind of interesting. Grant, we pray, almighty God, that as we are bathed in the new radiance of your incarnate word, the light of faith which illumines our minds may also shine through in our deeds. For Christ is the light of the world, the light that shines into the darkness. The word that became flesh, who reveals to us what authentic love is. That word becomes flesh. The word that is the source of all creation becomes flesh. And that is the light that illumines our minds. That faith is the illumination. The word become flesh in your life. Augustine would say it like this in his sermons on Christmas. All of us are to emulate Mary in giving birth. What does that mean? I can't give birth. I don't have a womb. It's a fact. I mean, I've never checked it out, but I presume that I don't have a womb. You give to give birth in faith, to let your light become the light that shines into the mist of the darkness. The memory of Christmas takes flesh for a particular life as you recognize the way that the light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that memory, it's not just a memory. I mean, Christmas is a remarkable feast, not simply because it's a time to get together with family, which it is, and I love it for that reason, but it's also the time in which, friends, the creator of heaven and earth became an infant. I wouldn't do that. Being an infant is not a great thing. It isn't. Have you ever looked at an infant? It is Infants are in pure angst. They cannot communicate to people. They cannot talk to people. All they desire to do is to express their emotions. And the only thing they can do is to cry and pain. And if I was the God who was to come into the world, I'd skip infancy. I'd at least find a way to telepathically communicate to people. But if the creator of heaven and the earth became flesh at Christmas, 
not just flesh, but an infons, the one who could not speak, became powerless, then what am I supposed to do with my life? Am I supposed to empty myself? To what level am I supposed to empty myself to bend down in love? And Christmas is the feast where the church relearns that fact and the church learns to once again become the infant. The infant of faith. The infant who empties themselves in love. I then wanted to turn to ascension. Then I'll do marriage, and then I'll do sacrifice. I think we think uh, the Feast of the Ascension following Easter, we think it's the most strange, weird feast in the world. Like, nobody knows how to talk about it. Did Jesus strap on a kind of, like, rocket pack? Float up into the sky? See you guys later. The prayer for ascension says this. Gladden us with holy joys, almighty God, and make us rejoice with devout thanksgiving for the ascension of Christ your Son is And where the head has gone before in glory, the body is called to... Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. In Christ, Christ is fully human and fully divine. He's still fully human and fully divine. Christ's humanity didn't disappear. He wasn't like someone who came back, uh, a college student who went back to visit his high school and said like, hmm... It was cool being here, but just wait till you get to college. Then it's awesome. Your humanity was good for a time, but you know what? I found something better. No, Christ remains fully human. The life of the church is fully human. It's Christ's own life. Your desires, your sufferings, your pains are taken up into Christ's flesh. And when you pray... When you pray, your voice becomes Christ's voice whispered into the ear of the very Father. And that's what's celebrated on every ascension. That your destiny is the transformation of everything that makes you human into the life of God. All your joys, all your sufferings, never to be erased. Never to be erased, but transfigured, transformed into the life of God. All of us have sufferings, all of us have joys, and all of us have sufferings. In the liturgical life of the church, the memory that we learn allows our sufferings and joys to be taken up into the life of God, to find a meaning beyond what we could imagine. And that, my friends, is the beauty of the sacrament of marriage. Not that the the miseries get taken up into the life of God. I like being married. Um... I've been married for over six years, so, um, and my wife is here, so I definitely like being married, because we have a three-hour ride back to South Bend, so I love being married. But what is marriage, friends? Marriage is something very natural, very human. It would have existed without the church. Christ did not found marriage. It is truly right and just. This is the preface for the celebration of marriage. This is before the Eucharistic prayer. And it has a similar structure to the Colic prayer. It is truly right and just and our salvation always and everywhere to give you thanks, Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. For in him you have made a new covenant with your... As redeemed man and woman by the mystery death and resurrection. So in Christ, you might make them partakers of divine nature and joint heirs with him of heavenly glory. 
in the union of husband and wife, you give a sign of Christ's loving gift of grace so that the sacrament we celebrate might draw us back more deeply into the wondrous design of your love. Having been married now for six years, I have a lot of memories of marriage. A lot of extreme joys. And as anyone who's been married for a long period of time also knows, and six years is not a long period of time, but it's, uh, it's approaching beyond, it's entering into the period that will become long. You will experience sorrow. That the narrative as you journey along is a narrative that is the depths of a human life lived in the world with another human being. And after, you know, the first year of marriage is like a year of like, everything is beautiful. I love you. I can't believe I get to come home every day with you. And then somewhere around year three, you're like, I can't believe I come home every day with you. And if it was just that narrative alone, it would be inadequate. But the narrative for us is something distinct. It's taken up into the narrative of Christ and the church. That the narrative of Christ and the church, the love shown between Christ and the church, is the narrative of our sacrament. And that my marriage means something distinct because of the sacramental life that it's taken on. That I bestow myself in love to my wife, not because um, it's still easy or difficult, or it's what I measure my love by. The gift of Christ to the church. That's the deepest reality at the heart of my marriage. And it's not always visible, right? That's what sacraments are. Nobody sees something magical happen in baptism. Generally. I mean, the infant will pee in the font. Right? So that's not magical. That's just normal peeing. The, the beauty is that the infant is transformed. The beauty is what we cannot see. The narrative of which it's taken up to. And that narrative in marriage is that. And it's true in all the sacraments. That it's Christ who comes to meet in the sacrament. And through that, my relationship has been transformed. And I can't think of my marriage in any other way but this. And that thus, here's something interesting. I love my wife, but it turns out our love is not about us. Because the narrative that we've adopted for it through the sacramental life of the church is that it's the love of Christ for the world. My marriage isn't about me. Shocking. It's about the world. It's about the transfiguration of all of creation in deeds of love. That's something you can kind of put your feet on in when times get difficult. So I wanted to close off with then how the Eucharist is sacrifice and how it becomes sacrifice. I think the essence of being a human being is gift. I mean, think about being human. Like when you're first born, all things are gift, right? Because you can't do anything for yourself. But even more than that, like you look at, you, you are just a receptor of things. You look at the world and the world gives itself to you. Because you're just kind of a receptor, a sensible receptor who's looking for, oh, there's light. Oh, there's a plush toy. Oh, there's a dog. I will stare at that dog for hours as if it's the most fascinating thing that's ever been created. And at some point in our life, we forgot the giftedness of the world. Creation is a gift. God didn't need to create the world. That's a fact. But God did. Out of an act of extreme love. And the first sin of human beings was they seized the gift. They seized it. They seized the apple. 
or the fruit of papaya. They seized it. They took what was to be given to them as a gift. And from this enters pain and suffering and death into the world. And if you look at kind of political structures, if you look at a lot of, of a lot what goes on with human relationships in the world today, it's exactly a matter not of gift, but of seizing, of stealing, of violence. I sometimes, I'm, I'm hating we're entering into political election season because it's the season of violence. It's a violent treating of politi- politicians treating each other violently, seeking not the truth, but the desire to be elected. In the Eucharist, we receive an image of what authentic gift is. For on the night before he died, Christ, who was fully God and fully human, offered the depths of his humanity for us and gave himself even to the end, who loved unto the end, who loved unto death, and gave himself to us. And in the Eucharist, that's the sacrament of that gift. It's the sacrament of the same gift that is given all the time in the life of the church. And we are transformed in the Eucharist. We receive the Eucharist that we might become that gift for the life of the world. We might become love. Like the offertory in the Eucharist. Why do we make the offertory? It's like such a waste of time. Like, why do you bring the gifts up from the back? It's so inefficient. Because at each Eucharist, we bring forth the depths of who we are, our sorrows, our joys, everything that we give thanks for, and we give it back to God. Because God has already given us every single thing in the entire world. All is gift. And we give it back to God because the only thing that God has given to us that we can give back to God is our will, our love. And the Eucharist is that act of love carried out. So we become that sacrifice. We become that sacrifice of love for the world. We encounter what true sacrifice is. Friends, in the world, every act of true love is a sacrifice because you don't have to love until the end. You can find a way out in a fallen world. But in Christ, we encounter radical love. In bread once bread, in wine once wine. We receive it, and we become that love, and we give it back up. Benedict XVI says, a Eucharist, if we attend the Eucharist, and it doesn't result in acts of radical self-giving love, the Eucharist is incomplete. It's fragmented. So, And I think about that a lot relative to why I'm attracted to going to Mass. Like, why am I attracted to going to Mass on a Sunday? I'm really bored at it sometimes, friends. Like, I study this for a living, and I'm really bored at Mass sometimes. Like, I'm not extremely holy. I promise you. I'm attracted to it because I need it. Because I need it in order to try to love in the world, to love the students I work with the students that I teach, the undergraduate who shows up on a Monday morning and who is so underprepared, it's offensive. I need that love that I might become that love. And only in receiving that love and becoming that love will the world itself become love. So in conclusion, I think if the church is able to kind of take up this memory. If the church is able to take the Eucharist very seriously as an act of love, then I think we'll become a relatively attractive place for people to come. 
And we won't, we'll be so happy to see people there because our whole lives will have become love. We will have become self-giving love. So I think Paul has some questions for us to follow. Thank you, Tim. Um, I think Tim gave us a, a lot to really think and chew on, um, a lot of good reflections on the liturgy and what it means to have our lives transformed, transfigured by the liturgy. What we're going to do right now is take about five minutes. Um, you can use the restroom, uh, stretch a little bit, and then we're going to come back with a few questions for you guys to kind of talk about or, um, amongst yourselves. Uh, and then we're going to open up for some questions to Tim. Uh, Tim's a very intelligent man, so if you've got questions on his talk, great. If you've got any, just any questions in general, love advice, uh, relationship advice, uh, Tim is your man. Uh, you can ask him anything. He's told me beforehand. No. Uh, if you have any questions about his talk, uh, anything like spurred or anything spurs within your talk uh, amongst yourselves, we'll have a kind of a Q&A session after that. So take about five minutes, use the restroom, stretch a little bit, and we'll be back with some questions. Thank you. So here are the questions that we encourage you to talk amongst those people you're sitting with. Uh, the first question is, um, Tim talked about uh, how God, uh, Jesus, en emptied himself and came um, uh, as a form of a servant uh, into our world. And he said that he would skip infancy if he was to come into the world. Um, so our first question to you is, if you came into the world, what age would you enter into the world as? Uh, would you enter as an infant? Uh, would you enter as a teenager, perhaps a fifth grader, perhaps a 40-year-old? I don't know. We're going to go present day age. So like in this world as we live in today, not back then. But if you were to enter the world 2012, what age would it be? Okay. You don't have to think too hard about that one. Okay. Um, next question. A little, we're going a little deeper. Um, what way or ways does liturgy affect the way you live the rest of your week. What day does your weekly attendance at liturgy at Mass on Sunday, how does that affect the way you live the rest of your week? Tim was really talking about how the way we, liturgy transforms our life and, you know, enters us into evangelization just by the way we live out the liturgy. So how, do, how does the liturgy affect the way we live? And then the final question is, um, what are ways you see your life um, as a gift. I think that's what it is. I can't read my handwriting. But in what ways do you see your life as a gift? Kind of Tim ended his talk about how our life is a gift, uh, a sacrifice. Um, and so in what ways do you see your life as a gift, uh, giving it back to God and his love for the world? So we're going to take about 10 minutes just to talk about that. And if anything sparks in your conversation or or if you, don't, if you had a, something that Tim said that really stuck out to you, you can talk about that. Uh, we're just trying to give you these questions as something to kind of start off your conversation. So we'll be back in about seven, ten minutes. Happy conversations. For our final part of the evening, we're going to welcome Tim back up. Let's give him a round of applause again for... I think he really kind of shed some... Uh, set some light on the liturgy for us and kind of give us a deep understanding of it. So does anyone have any questions uh, that maybe any, okay, it just cuts off every once in a while. Um, any questions for Tim? Okay, I had one. Okay, great. You have to just shout it out loud from out over there. So her question was why she, <laughs> I'm giving you some time to think about your answer. Um, her question is, she was wondering why he chose uh, marriage and Eucharist, and if he had anything else he wanted to share about the other sacraments. Sure. Um, maybe uh, I'll say something. I could say something about a lot of the sacraments, but I wanted to say something about uh, anointing of the sick in particular, because I studied a lot of that in college or in, in, when I was studying for my doctorate. Um, sickness is a kind of debilitating thing. For all of us. I mean, sickness isn't simply a matter of 
getting sick, right? It's not simply a matter of like, oh, I'm coughing. Like when you truly get sick, you come face to face with kind of like the deepest reality, which is that you're dying. Like all of us are in some ways dying. Like this came to the fore this year when I turned, I entered my 30s this year and I suddenly realized through a host of kind of, I had like small illnesses, all sorts of kind of, I tore a ligament in my knee while playing football in the snow, the sort of things that happened that didn't used to happen to me. Um, they happened. And, and I suddenly came like, oh, I'm entering towards a latter part of my life. And I suppose I could die tomorrow. I mean, but it was at this moment that I think I came to kind of the fullness of the sacrament, for example, of the sick, which is that in our illness, Christ the healer comes to meet us. Uh, and suddenly our healing... Or, or our illness becomes redeemed. It takes on a different narrative as it's taken up within the sacrament of the sick itself. As we're anointed with oil. As we hear the scriptures read of Christ who comes to heal us. And as we come to face with reality that, that the deepest healing we need in the sacrament of the sick is the healing that the openness towards death, whatever it might bring. The future. Um, so I don't have text for those, but that's something I've come to realize with the sacrament of the sick in particular. Um, similarly in, uh, penance and confession, a kind of gift of the four parts of the sacrament, um, the act of first feeling sorry for what you've done, um, that's the act of penance. It turns out uh, most most uh, most people in public positions the sorrow that they're that they have uh, they like to say like I'm someone I'm sorry that someone else is mad that about what I said but the first act of contrition that one makes like there's something really limiting about realizing that you're actually um, capable of doing wrong. So I think in the sacrament of penance, being able to stand before God and say that you're wrong comes to kind of transfigure your life, um, that you learn to not hold on to your sins or your darkness. I've watched this a lot with uh, adolescents who go through the sacrament of penance and find it as a kind of transformative experience in their life where they suddenly realize that penance is uh, an encounter with Christ, but a posture in which they're still recognized as beloved by God through the mediation of the sacrament itself, through uttering words to someone else that they're wrong, and then through the words of mediation that come back, uh, a mediation of love, of absolution, um, and a life that has become penance. I probably could do more, but I, I think that all the sacraments at their root touch upon something that's deeply human and transfigure it and transform it into something divine. Thank you. Any other questions? For ten, that was a great question. Really wonderful question. Yes, gentleman in the back. So he, if you didn't hear back here, but Jake was asking about what the... For Tim to talk a little bit about the role of the community in the liturgy. Um, and Jake was kind of touching on some maybe positive aspects of that and then possibly some that aspects that are pulling us away from what the liturgy is, I think is what it's kind of drawing at. So one of the things I realized when I lived on the East Coast was that I don't actually like other human beings that much. And the East Coast was a good place for this. I felt like nobody liked other human beings that much either. And so I, I felt at home. Um, I love parishes in particular. Like, I don't like to worship in places, go to mass at places, where I get to choose the community that confronts me. 
Like, I don't like to go to places where it's people who look like me, who are exactly like me, who are my same age, who have the same socioeconomic status as me. Um, I like to go to places where, like, the full depths of humanity are there. Like, the full depths of the body of Christ are there. Because the body of Christ is the fullness of our humanity in worship. And, and that means that everyone who comes... I like people at Mass who don't want to, including myself, hold hands during the Our Father. I don't want to hold your hands. And I belong there. And so does the person who wants to hold your hand during the Our Father. And so does the person who came in who this very week, like, had the person most desperate in their... Or, who went through, like, the biggest suffering moment of their life. Like, who just experienced the death of their spouse that very week. They're there. And their prayers are taken up into Christ's own voice, just as your prayers are. And so the community is the full kind of depths of the human experience in prayer at God and you can't kind of choose who's going to be there. And that's why I like parishes so much. That's why I think parishes are kind of a, a, a really beautiful thing in American Catholicism. Uh, why I would never want to see them disappear because I don't get to choose who's there. I worship with like humanity in all of its myriad forms. But that also means that there's another community operative in worship. Um, this is the second point. It's not just us gathered. It's the communion of saints, the angels. Um, so it's not simply about my friendship that's here. It's about a radical way of love that I that interrupts my friendships, that interrupts my marriage, that interrupts everything that it is a, that I am, and then teaches me a way of loving and being in friendship more radically. It's a sense of community that's even more expansive than we could imagine. Um, yes. Any, any more questions for Tim? I think we have time for one more question. Okay. Well, we have even more time for no more questions, so that's perfect. Um, I think we should give Tim another round of applause. I think he gave some really deep uh, answers to some great questions. Um, and I, I think the, the last point you were making, Tim, about interrupting, um, I think that's something that we can take away from here is, you know, as we conclude in prayer, that this weekend, that the lit if when we go to Mass on Sunday or the next time we encounter the liturgy, that it may interrupt our life. Um, because I don't think that I often allow it to interrupt my life or my friendships or my marriage. Uh, I kind of just let it stay over there. Um, so let us, let us conclude uh, with prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious and loving Father, um, we thank you so much for this wonderful evening for time to gather with friends uh, and people we are just meeting. Lord, we ask your blessing um, that you have poured on, on, out on us already uh, upon Tim and Kara as they drive back up to South Bend. Keep them awake uh, and all the other drivers uh, out of their way. Lord, we, we ask that the conversation and the words we took in today um, will rest on our hearts and help us as we enter into the liturgy um, this Sunday and every time we enter into the divine liturgy. Uh, and finally, Lord, we pray for all those who could not make it tonight, all those who are suffering in this world, um, especially in this summer heat and drought. We lift up all these prayers with all the angels and saints and ask for the intercession of our mother Mary as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that includes our formal part of the evening. You are more than welcome to stay uh, until they kick you out. Uh, thanks so much for being here this week. Uh, thanks to Tim and to Kara.
for both driving down from South Bend. And uh, hope to see you next week. Father Dennis Robinson is going to be really, really wonderful. So thanks again. Have a great night.